Welcome to the Stoyas podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. In 1542, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo's galleon San Salvador sailed into San Diego Bay. In 2015, 473 years later, the San Diego Maritime Museum christened a reconstruction of the ship in the same harbor. How was a ship that sailed almost 500 years ago rebuilt in today's world? To find out, I'm joined by Carla Rand Phillips, Professor Emerita of the University of Minnesota, who chaired the Historical Design Committee for the ship. So Professor Phillips, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. So before we talk about reconstructing the San Salvador, let me ask you, who was Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo and why was his voyage so important? Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo was one of the many folks who sailed for Spain and participated in the various conquests in the Americas. And at one point or another, he worked with a big deal a conquistador named Pedro de Alvarado. And Alvarado trusted him to supervise the construction of a number of ships. So he got very used to doing that. He owned some of the ships, including San Salvador, and eventually went on a voyage for the Spanish crown that was trying to figure out this very mysterious um, pattern in the Pacific about how to get to Asia and then how to get back again. And his task was to sail up the west coast of North America and see if he could find the winds and the currents that would um, lead to Asia and lead back again. He failed <laughs> in doing that. On the other hand, uh, along with other uh, failed voyages, they learned about winds and currents, and eventually those uh, pieces of knowledge fed into the correct interpretation of how the Pacific functioned, and that enabled later explorers to get, not only get to uh, Asia, but to get back again, and that that took uh, another 40 years after Cabrillo. So, how much do we actually know about the life of Cabrillo himself and his voyage from the sources that we have? Well, it's very interesting. As you mentioned, the reconstruction was christened in 2015. It took four years to build, and we'll get into that later. But at that point, at 2015, we had no clear idea of where he was born. It was thought that he was probably Spanish or Portuguese. The San Diego community had long bought into the notion that he was Portuguese, but the only putative source for that was a remark by someone 150 years later mentioning Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo along with other explorers of the West Coast of North America and mentioned that he was Portuguese. In fact, there was one guy uh, in that group of folks who in fact was Portuguese and very important, but it wasn't clear if that was an accurate indication. And just a few months after the christening, a Canadian scholar named Wendy Kramer 
ran into definitive proof in the Spanish archives, in, in the, uh, this online source, wonderful source called the Portal de Archivos Españoles, the portal of Spanish archives, and found definitive proof that Juan Rodriguez was born in a little town uh, very near Cordoba. It's now called Palma del Rio. And at the point, at that point in the early 16th century, it was called Palma de Misergilio because uh, a medieval king had donated that town uh, to a guy named Misergilio. And later its name was changed back to Palma del Rio. And it's basically downriver uh, from Cordoba. This was definitive proof. And Wendy Kramer later found lots and lots of documents when uh, Juan Rodriguez was in Spain in 1532 to take care of various business uh, arrangements that he had. He got married, he, he dealt with properties and so on. There is no question that that is the same man. And so now we know, uh, whereas we did not know where he was born. And those documents also told him a good bit more about his dealings uh, in Spain, his personal finances and so on, before he went back to um, what was what is today Guatemala, but there, then it was part of uh, the Viceroyalty of New Spain and went on the voyage of discovery that he, that he took over from Pedro de Alvarado because Alvarado died in 1541. So Cabrillo, Juan Rodriguez, took over from him and went on that voyage. So now, ironically, a few years after that ship was completed, we now know and we have a very, very clear idea of who he was. We knew already what he had done in, um, in Guatemala and his, his uh, work with Alvarado and so on, but we didn't know the most basic things about him until a few years ago, and now we do. Wow, and that's amazing, as you said, that it was discovered so many years, um, not only after the voyage, but just after the construction of the ship had been completed. And um, this also strikes me as interesting because I know that this was an important part of kind of the community identity for the Portuguese community. And there is one in San Diego. Um, I know that they, there's a statue at the Cabrillo National Monument that uh, I believe was donated by that community. And I remember an event at the, uh, one of the naval bases there commemorating his landing and there was actually a Portuguese admiral who had come to attend the event. So um, how did they react to this? Oh dear, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an unfortunate story. They had bought into it so thoroughly and their belief was supported by the Portuguese government, Portuguese Navy. The Portuguese community has long been very, very important in San Diego, the tuna fisheries and all kinds of things there. So they did not react well. And in fact, still officially, I think they have not accepted that he was born in Spain. And I remember when, when we got word that Wendy Kramer had found these documents and I happened to have been volunteering 
at the museum that day. And it was September of 2015, a few months after the christening. And the notion was that the annual commemoration of Cabrillo's landing was just about to happen. And it was gonna be in the newspapers that in fact, he was, he was Spanish, not Portuguese. And we sat around the table, about six of us, uh, officials at the Maritime Museum, bemoaning that this was going to completely ruin the annual commemoration, bad feeling, all kinds of things. And we had been kind of hoping that even if he had been born in Spain, well, it was very close to the border and that he had lots of Portuguese friends. And so, you know, this could work out, but, but it didn't. And the documents are absolutely clear. And I think still there are elements of the Portuguese community that simply do not accept the validity of the, the historical record. Interestingly enough, over the years, the commemoration in San Diego would indicate that he was Portuguese. And then a couple of weeks later in Los Angeles or the, the harbors in Los Angeles, where he also touched, uh, they would also reenact the landing and there he was always Spanish. <laughs> so so th this has gone on for, you know, not hundreds of years, but, but certainly decades uh, in Southern California. Well, yeah, that's amazing and kind of a unexpected uh, consequence of historical research done about a period hundreds of years ago. So we'll take a short pause and then we'll take a look at the research was that was done in order to reconstruct Cabrillo's ship, the San Salvador. All right, welcome back. Now, how did the project of reconstructing the San Salvador get started and how did you get involved? The Maritime Museum in San Diego has long been interested in uh, this ship. And every year, as I said before, there is a commemoration of his landing in September. So the notion that there would actually be a reconstruction built has been an idea that was kicking around for a long time. But the definitive decision by the brilliant head of the museum, Ray Ashley, uh, was probably in about 2007. But lots of money had to be amassed, a construction site had to be decided on, there are all kinds of things that, that went on. But by 2009, there was a mini conference that I was involved in. And it was sort of natural that I would be involved because I have a long connection with San Diego and with the Maritime Museum. And I knew Ray Ashley and everybody there and everybody knew that I worked on uh, Spanish maritime history of the 16th and 17th centuries. So it was, it was natural to get involved in that. And I was delighted uh, to do that. So that's really how it, how it, got started. And then from then on, we began to work on uh, figuring out what the ship would look like, um, who would design it, how it would be built, and all that kind of thing. But I, I would say 2009 is probably the definitive date 
that the project really got off the ground. So how did you go about doing that work of figuring out what the San Salvador was actually like and how did you find that information out? Well, that's another interesting story. Uh, all we knew about the ship was two sentences in a report uh, that said it was a galleon and that said it was about 200 toneladas in Spanish reckoning. And this was a report uh, that was sent to the Spanish crown along with a, with a painting of the 13 ships that Alvarado had built. And that painting, unfortunately, nobody has ever been able to find since then. But the fact that it was a galleon, the fact that it was about 200 toneladas gave me the best clues that I could have. And I have worked with ships of this period. So what I did was kind of reverse engineer. I knew the formula that was used to figure out how big a ship was given its dimensions. Knowing that it was 200 toneladas, I could reverse engineer that, come up with some basic dimensions. How long is it on the first deck? How broad is it on the first deck? And how deep in the hold would it be? And so on. So those very, very basic dimensions, plus paintings of ships of the period, and a very few treatises, uh, none from the period, but um, probably the best uh, one was uh, Diego Gar Garcia de Palacio's uh, work from 1587. And that talked about dimensions, it talked about uh, how you form the ribs, various things like that, which I already knew from my, from my own research. So with those basic measures, the design committee, uh, my work basically, turned it over to the naval architect who was actually going to make a ship out of all of this. And this is a man, again, brilliant um, yacht designer as it happens, but, but it named Doug Sharp. But also as it happens, this was during the uh, recession of the, uh, from 2008 on. And there weren't too many people in San Diego commissioning yachts for Doug to design. So he got involved in the project and really ran with it and had a wonderful time and did a, a brilliant job. But he would from time to time send computer generated drawings about, did it look like this? Did it look like that? And, it, and finally at one point I said, Doug, that is starting to look look very familiar. And so once we had the basic dimension and from paintings and so on, the various ways it looked from the outside, then Doug could only look authentic, but the hardest part to make it agree with the code of federal regulations for seagoing vessels that were going to carry passengers because it's very clear that this would be a teaching vessel for the museum, that school children would go on it, that paying guests would go on it um, for an afternoon or for a week at a time. It had to meet Coast Guard regulations. And it also had to have uh, two powerful diesel engines. 
So there were all kinds of, of things that Doug had to do to make it look authentic and at the same time to follow all of these other things that made it not just like doing a replica of the ship, but to ballast it properly, to take account of the engines. Um, in the 16th century, of course, the engines were the sails and the ballast was not only uh, to stabilize the hull, but there would have been cargo stabilizing the hull, filling up uh, below decks and, and between decks. Whereas San Salvador, the reconstruction, there would be a whole lot of empty space where there would be bunks for people who were um, paying guests. And that empty space, of course, is not balancing the weight of the sails in, in the way that it would have happened in the 16th century. So this was, this was not easy. And that he did it and that San Salvador sails beautifully is, is certainly a tribute to Doug's skill. So he actually had to put extra weight in the ship to compensate for the fact that it wasn't carrying cargo. Absolutely. And, uh, and the most interesting statistic, uh, the ballast would have been rocks, sometimes sand, you know, in the 16th century. Mm -hmm. What the ballast is for San Salvador is 175,000 pounds of lead ingots wow. that fortuitously were donated. They were, they were kind of left over from, from an entity in Southern California, in, in San Diego. Uh, and uh, Ray Ashley, I don't know if they just offered it to him or if he asked, but really all he could say was thank you. And uh, that, that was the ballast, the, the basic ballast. Now, how about everything that went inside the ship, the rigging and the equipment and so forth? How did you figure out um, how to model that on the San Salvador? Again, another interesting dilemma, because although we have some things that tell us what hull and ribs and other kinds of things look like uh, in the 16th century, there are no books or manuals about 16th century rigging. The closest we can get is sort of 18th century stuff. And there were a lot of features that changed over time, of course. And there are safety features in the 19th century, such as foot ropes for the people going aloft and dealing with the sails. And we, the, the, the folks who were going to do, do training for the sail crews, were absolutely adamant that there would be no foot ropes because that is completely anachronistic. So although a few people go aloft, Essentially, San Salvador can be sailed with um, controlling the sails from the deck. And that involved uh, all kinds of special rigging, uh, martinetes and one thing and another. And this is, this is essentially due to David Clark, uh, a friend of mine, but a, a brilliant uh, rigger and, and not tire and sailor who worked for the Department of Defense for, <laughs> during his real career. Um, but he figured out a way that, that virtually every sail on San Salvador can be controlled from the deck. And although that's anachronistic, it is not as anachronistic as uh, foot ropes. And so the rigging looks good, 
and it's as close as we can get, but we have no manuals. Wow, well, that's amazing the way they were able to, and you were able to figure out how to replicate this as accurately as possible in the modern world. So we'll take another pause here and then we'll talk about the process of actually building the ship Welcome back. So how was this major undertaking of reconstructing this San Salvador organized? The museum did a very good job of organizing things, but it wasn't clear at the beginning whether most of the labor would be paid union carpenters and so on, and then just very few volunteers. But, you know, there were money difficulties in one thing and another. And so it ended up Oh, fewer than a dozen at the end of union carpenters and, and professional shipwrights and over 400 volunteers over the, not at once, of course, but over the course of the four years of construction, over 400. And you would show up and sign a waiver um, <laughs> that if you injured yourself, this was not their fault. And then you would be doing all kinds of things. I know, I know uh, grandmothers who learned how to drive a forklift and, and others who were doing one thing and another. I, I, uh, you, I know how to use power tools, and, uh, but, but I, was, uh, I was cutting trunnels, tree nails out of, out of uh, wood blocks with a drill press. One afternoon, I was doing all kinds of things with, with drills and saws and basically trying to stay out of the way. That I specialized in holding the dumb end of the tape and the dumb end of the board, uh, as, as they say, and sweeping, a whole lot of sweeping because there was uh, sawdust and, and wood shavings. One of the professional carpenters, wonderful, wonderful guy, Australian named Peter Wilson, and I have watched him take a, a jack plane on a 16 foot beam and run it down and have one continuous peel come off that. And if you've ever used a jack plane, you know, I just sort of hack at things. But Peter could have one curl out the end of a, a 16 foot board. It was amazing to watch. Wow, that is amazing. It must have given you some appreciation for the shipwrights that built these ships back in the 16th century, when so many of our, our modern equipment like forklifts, they didn't have. Well, that's true, except if they had had power tools, they would have used power tools. But anyhow, the construction was was organized very well. Uh, there were There was material donated. There was a lot of material bought. In some cases, the, they had to essentially build machines that would do what they needed to have done. For example, cutting the, the curves of the rib uh, out of Georgia pine. There were very few machines that could do that properly. And luckily, the build site Interestingly enough, at a place called Spanish Landing in San Diego, it's always been called Spanish Landing, 
but the city and the Port Authority uh, allowed the ship to be built there. It was an unused parking lot and, and near an overpass of, um, uh, of the boulevard. And that was useful because under the overpass, uh, machines that would have been sensitive to the weather and that shouldn't be rained on could be parked underneath uh, there, although the, the basic framing and the, the ship was built out in the open. But that was, um, it worked really very, very well. There were supervisors uh, and wranglers for the volunteers, but it worked very well. Yeah, well, that is a very impressive undertaking. And I think in some sense, you were at a disadvantage since people don't build these kind of ships anymore. So much of that uh, infrastructure, as you mentioned, had to be established from scratch. So could you tell us more about your own experience in constructing the San Salvador? What kinds of tasks did you do? And what was it like to work on a ship like this? Well, as, as I said earlier, mainly I tried to stay out of the way and did a lot of sweeping and so on. But I, I did a lot of painting. I painted the two coats of primer on the engine room. Um, I helped attach some of the planking on the main deck, the trunnels. And one of the major shipwrights actually knows the old techniques and uh, is Frank Townsend. And he did the caulking in between the seams on the deck. And I helped him by, by holding the can that we melted the tar in uh, with an acetylene torch. And then he would pour the, the tar into the seams and, and uh, uh, make sure it was watertight. And that's, that's important. You can use modern materials for that. But then if you need to recock, you have to drag it all out uh, and do it again. With the old techniques, you can simply top off the tar in the seams. So that's why it was decided to, uh, to do that. So I did a whole lot of things and tried to volunteer every time I was in San Diego, though I live in central Texas. I don't live in San Diego, so I couldn't volunteer a whole lot. But there were some people who, who put in literally thousands of hours and a broad spectrum of folks in, in San Diego. I, I was scraping paint one day uh, with a guy who was an orthopedic surgeon and just uh, donating his time when he felt like it. And, and one guy, his, his nickname was Deadeye Bob, uh, Bob Jetson, who had never done stuff like this before. And he became an expert in cutting and fashioning the dead eyes that, that, are, that are part of the rigging equipment. So it was a wonderful, wonderful group of folks um, all together. And I thoroughly enjoyed the time that I, that I spent working on, on the ship. And I, I never hurt myself, at least not badly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. <laughs> now, can you also describe for listeners what the experience was like of actually sailing on a ship like the San Salvador. It's, it's wonderful. I had sailed on the, the flagship of the Maritime Museum, the Star of India, um, several times. And the thing that, that often surprises people, it's noisy. You think, oh, well, I'm out, out at sea and there's no engines and so on. But they, it's never quiet. The rigging is creaking, there's, there's, uh, the sails are flapping. 
it is not as quiet as you might think. San Salvador sails beautifully. And the first time that Ray Ashley took her out and first tried to tack, uh, expecting that it wouldn't work real well and they'd have to figure out other methods and so on. And he ordered, uh, he ordered the tack, in other words, changing a direction by, by resetting the sails. It worked beautifully the first time he ordered it. And I went on a, a one afternoon sail and I've been on a week long sail off the California coast. And what Ray likes to do is to use the engines as little as possible. Uh, so mostly we were under sail. And the only time we use the engines is when we had to make time or when we had to get into a port quickly to, to make sure that the schedule was followed. So essentially we were, the crew was sailing this ship the way it would have been sailed more or less uh, in the 16th century. And the sail training crew is very well trained uh, and carefully trained, uh, largely by David Clark, but also by others as well. And the ship is steered not by a wheel, uh, as you would have in a later version of a sailing ship, but it's steered with a whip staff, which is a lever that is attached to the rudder at the rear of the ship and it comes up and then it is positioned in a place aft where the helms person, and these days it's often, it's often women who are part of the, the sail crew, steer by, by literally by main force moving the rudder. And this uh, was a, a whip staff was a method that was used way up into the 17th century, but it's hard. Uh, an hour on the, with that whip staff is just enough to leave your arms like jelly, unless you're really, really strong in upper body strength. But it, it sails beautifully. And I have been in rough weather um, off the California coast. It's often rough. And the ship did well. The passengers did not do too well. <laughs> but, but the ship uh, did very well indeed in in rough weather. So it is it is beautifully designed, and uh, I would say sails at least as well as a 16th century galleon would have sailed. To conclude here, I wanted to ask you, how did your whole experience with this project of building a 16th century ship did it alter in any way your understanding of the maritime history of this period that uh, you've worked on for so long? It didn't alter it mm -hmm. as much as, as deepen it. Uh, there, there's nothing like seeing equipment used or helping to coil ropes or any of those things that you really begin to understand how this worked and, and what was required to do it right um, and how many things can go wrong. It's uh, one false move. Uh, if, if the seas are rough, uh, and you can hurt yourself very badly, the, the notion is always that you have one hand uh, for you and one hand for the ship. You never, especially if it's rough, you never let go altogether. And if you do, you're likely to be flung halfway across the deck. And as I say, you can hurt yourself very badly. Mm -hmm. So um, it, is, it is a reminder of how dangerous it was to sail the seas. It's, uh, 
shall we say, much less dangerous these days on cruise ships, although cruise ships have their problems as well. But, but it gives you a healthy respect for the power of nature, for the power of the sea and the wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that was a deepening of my understanding that I'm very grateful to have had. Well, thank you so much, Professor Phillips, for coming on the program and sharing the fascinating story of reconstructing the ship with us. And hopefully some of our listeners will have the chance to visit San Diego someday and see the San Salvador for themselves. Thank you so much, Foster. And, and you can sail on San Salvador. They, they take her out regularly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.